I'm Brandon Webb, former Navy SEAL and founder of Crate Club, the number one tactical and survival gear subscription box in America. Being prepared matters, so choose military-grade hand-picked gear by special ops professionals. Gift Crate Club today at crateclub.com. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Fred Galvin, a retired Marine Raider officer of Marshock Fox Company fame, Philip Stackhouse, the attorney of Gany Dreicher, and Bull Garfine, CEO of United American Patriots, a legal defense fund for military personnel accused of war crimes. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon. Fred, let's begin with you. Can you please tell us about your experience with Fox Company and the military legal system? I'll be very brief. The situation came where we were the first Marine Special Operations Task Force. We were deployed to Afghanistan. The case happened in March of 2007. And we were on a patrol in a border village right near the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. And 30 of our Marine Raiders were attacked with a, a vehicle, explosive device, a, a van that detonated and uh, impacted against the front of our patrol. Then uh, we had jihadists attack us from both sides of the road in this small village, which is a known Taliban stronghold. We were going in there that morning to do a key leader engagement. All of a sudden, we had uh, ended up in a complex, coordinated ambush with multiple elements of jihadists firing fully automatic weapons. Another position that was a elevated sniper position from high ground, and they dragged a vehicle who crossed the road and had a mob swarm trying to capture us in the kill zone. Our Marines did exactly what we were trained to do, which uh, reminds me of this situation here, although it didn't involve a, a firefight. In our case, this ambush against us, we, we killed the enemy that morning. There was nothing but military men in that town at that time. We killed the ones that were advancing towards us with weapons, particularly one that was driving a vehicle sports utility vehicle with jihadists hanging out the side of it, shooting at us. And it was coming down an unimproved trail with nothing behind it. So, you know, some people think that we were, you know, alleged firing wildly. There was reports from the locals that we were drunk and that we dismounted and we went door to door. And as crazy as that sounds, Stavros, that's what the military leadership believed. When my commanding officer first met us after we were expelled out of Afghanistan, he asked us, is it true? Is it true that we're drunk? So 
those reports from the Afghan locals, senior military leadership wanted to believe those. And, you know, as far as Marines, sailors, airmen, you know, soldiers wanting to fight when your leadership doesn't have your back at all, that's, it's a bad place to be in, especially if you're in this type of position where these frontline foot soldiers are going back to one combat deployment after the next. And you don't have it in your brain that if something happens in this gray area that is going to be questioned and sooner or later, enough of these deployments and all these missions on the deployments, some things are going to arise. And generally they do with the enemy because we're dealing with terrorism and they like to operate in that gray area. So it is very important for our leadership to be able to walk a mile in our shoes and understand what it's like at that frontline foot soldier level. And in my case, there were numerous officers and I'm not talking about, I'm not condemning the military at large at all. I love the military, served 27 years. It's a great organization, especially the United States Marine Corps. I'm talking about is certain individuals and these individuals in this case with these three MARSOC personnel, some of the same, very same personalities we're talking about here. I'm not going to get into depth with that, but uh, these people wouldn't give us the benefit of the doubt. So the American Constitution, which everything that we learn in America about having the presumption of innocence, and just like it says under the apex of the Supreme Court, equal justice under law, that's our society is based on laws. These go out the window. And why the military is so dangerous and so different than a civilian court system in the United States is that the jury, these people are picked and they, in most cases, in my case, it was these people report, they make the final report to the convening authority, which is a senior Marine officer. And in the Marine Corps, it's a, it's a closed loop system. So if you want to get promoted, if you want to get assigned, you know, you're, you're going to give your boss Marine Corps taught instant obedience to orders. That's the, that's the definition we call in the Marine Corps discipline. So there's this ideology to please your commanding officer, your commanding general, or who the convening authority is. That's totally different than in a civilian court system where the jurors, they don't, they don't have any influence from uh, the convening authority, the one that's going to make the final decision. They don't have any influence by him at all. So this has uh, really gotten toxic over the years. And how I first met Phil Stackhouse is he defended a, a Marine when he was an active duty Marine lawyer. It was one of the very, very first cases, a law of war case that arose in Iraq. And in that situation, you know, a young Marine second lieutenant who was, you know, there on the battlefield in, in Fallujah had two Iraqi terrorists that uh, turned and charged towards him and he shot them. And this got referred very swiftly up to a you know, military trial and at the Article 32 hearing that Phil was the defenders, which was then Second Lieutenant Alario Pantano. And that's uh, when our case happened three years later, Ilario Pantano had heard and uh, you know, connected us and uh, Phil Stackhouse did defend one of our Marines. And I can't tell you enough good things about Phil because he did it all pro bono. He said he's not going to even take any, any fees, which is extraordinary. I mean, these cases, our cases lasted, the investigation lasts almost a year and the three and a half week trial. I mean, this, this is a, something extraordinary. And, you know, thank God that you have people who 
empathize and want to help and support, and they don't really count the cost financially. I mean, that's a long time to represent somebody in a lot of man hours when there's literally 20,000 pages of evidence to review and understand. So, but what we have is a situation right now where the, the same leadership. So when, during my investigation, you know, they put me in the penalty box, they pulled me from my task force, they relieved me of command and they sent me to work at the Marine Corps special operations command headquarters in the operations section. And I were reported directly to a gentleman who at that time was the assistant chief of staff for operations for MARSOC. And uh, then at that time was Colonel Dan Yu. Now he's actually the commanding general of MARSOC. He's the convening authority in these men's case. Several things that happened during that time and experience while the investigation was going on where the entire G3 section, every officer had complained to the inspector general at MARSOC and they launched an official investigation for command climate. And I, as well as every single officer was brought in rooms in groups. And I've never in my 27 years military history heard people vent and give examples of how he just went off on them, diminished their character, just outright, you know, created this toxic environment where I've never seen that type of thing, but I have seen a lot of situations that have gone to command climate investigations over something very minor and small. And then it usually leads to the relief of, you know, that commanding officer. So this time it was surprising. He didn't got a pass. He didn't get relieved, was quickly shuffled out of the command, but then ends up getting command of the 4th Marine Regiment over in Okinawa. And after I left MARSOC, went to Okinawa myself, and he told the commanding officer over there at the time, he was like, do not, and this is after Stavros, this is after I was cleared in court in a, in a military trial, the longest trial in Marine Corps history. He said, here you had my old boss telling commanding officer of Recon- Marine Reconnaissance Battalion, don't have anything to do. What he did was a disgrace to the Marine Corps. Him and his guys got away with murder. They killed all these women and civilians. And, and so after I mean, this trial went on while he was my direct boss. For, for him to not know the facts of the case, that's, you know, that's illogical. He did know everything about this, but here he is, character assassinating me. And, and why this is important is this guy right now is the convening authority. This guy, when he was a young captain in his formative careers, he got a DUI when he was a young captain going through school, and he got a second chance. And that's what we're really asking is, how about these young enlisted Marines, enlisted corpsmen, they're involved in this case. I mean, it's Phil will talk about the specific details of this case as he's defending one of these Marine writers. This, this isn't something that people are just deciding on. This went through an investigation, and it went through an Article 15-6 preliminary investigation, went to a Article 32 trial, and you thought that people would make sense of this because this is just a guy defending himself. And then it went straight. Now it's going to a court martial for these three men with charges of manslaughter. So this isn't something that's kind of going away or losing steam. These charges lead to people serving the potential to people serving in Leavenworth disciplinary barracks for the rest of their lives. I personally know from the men in my task force that were falsely accused, I can tell you about Navy SEALs, all these different people who over the years I've met 
even if they get off and you know they they're proven innocent the destruction that happens to their health their careers their finances it is the worst thing that can happen to you in while you're serving your country not just that you've been betrayed but i've seen people get health their, their cancer diabetes ruin their finances their divorce people get severe severe forms of cancer and it happens more often than not and that's what's going on right now and that's why we're asking the listeners to get involved in this case get online www.congress.gov backslash directory contact your congressman after you listen to this full podcast and let them know the facts of this case and that hey why in the hell is this going to a court martial for these guys who defended themselves against some guy who was attacking them but i don't want to get into uh, the facts of Phil's, I want him to explain the specific details of what happened. But here's a guy who over the years had all these backs and I'll let him describe some of his cases and how this has evolved where it's, it's the vogue trend for commanders to, you know, throw their guys under the bus, not give them the benefit of the doubt for the benefit of their career. I've never seen after some of these cases, like the Pat Tillman case where it was friendly fire and people they wanted investigations. Now it's senior commanders, it's investigations gone wild. They will always, you can't hurt to investigate. So take the responsibility off me. I will launch an investigation and I'll be disciplined. I'll be hard. That's the mindset. But I'll have Phil from the legal perspective talk about the case and, and these trends, this evolution of the law of war cases. Thank you, Fred. And you listen, if anyone is wondering how can how he can help in this case, you heard the man. Phil, can you please tell us what happened on New Year's Day 2019? I will, and, and thanks for having us on your show. And I, and I will tell you, uh, as the, you know, the talk goes on here, as you described uh, in the introduction, I represent Gunnery Sergeant Danny Dreyer. I don't represent Gunnery Sergeant Negron. I don't represent Chief Gilmet. Uh, I only represent... Gunnery Sergeant Dreher. Uh, so I just want to make sure that that's, you know, put, put out there for folks that are listening. So I, I think what's important is to, to let the listeners hear a little bit about what was presented at the Article 32 hearing for these three. And, you know, I'm going to speak to, as objectively as I can uh, about what was presented during that hearing, because I think, I, I think it's really important for everybody to know. For those who don't know, can you please explain what's an Article 32 yeah. hearing? Yeah, so it's, it's loosely the equivalent of the, the, the military version of a grand jury investigation. Before a case is allowed to go to a general court martial, which is, again, loosely the equivalent of a civilian felony court, you have to go through what's called an Article 32 investigation. It's a little bit different than a grand jury in that uh, the accused gets to be present. Uh, we get to present some evidence in the case. We get to cross-examine witnesses that are uh, called to provide evidence in the case. So it does, in fact, look like a mini trial. And that's what happened uh, just a couple months ago at, at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. And they did, uh, they did a joint hearing. So all three of the co-accused were present and all of their counsel were present as well. And during that hearing, what it showed was is that the three Raiders uh, were allowed to go out on liberty while they were stationed in Erbil, Iraq. 
they were allowed to go out and uh, have dinner and socialize with the folks in Erbil. Uh, most of the folks that they would socialize with were uh, fellow service members from the base they were assigned to, or they were contractors that were assigned to the base. And, and that's what happened over New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve, uh, the three Raiders went out to have dinner. And after they uh, finished dinner, right after the New Year's, they went to a restaurant called the T-Bar, like the letter T-B-A-R, uh, in Arbeel. And once they got there, they saw a bunch of folks from the base. And not long after they arrived, this Mr. Rodriguez approached Chief Gilmet, and there's video of this that was shown at the Article 32 hearing. And you can tell the establishment's kind of loud because they're kind of, uh, you know, leaning over and talking into each other's ear. Uh, there's a handshake. There's some pats on the shoulder. They speak for a few minutes. After they, after they talk for a few minutes, they, they part ways. And uh, it was later communicated to the other two from Chief Gilmet that Mr. Rodriguez had approached him and was questioning him about why he doesn't respect him and why he doesn't come talk to him about medical issues on, on the, uh, the base. And uh, if, if we didn't say it early on, Chief Gilmet's an independent duty corpsman, so he's a, a, a very highly trained, very skilled corpsman in the Navy assigned to the Marine Raider unit. The video shows sometime after that, uh, maybe an hour or so after that, that Mr. Rodriguez approaches Gilmet again and is in an extremely agitated state. And you can see clearly in the video that Chief Gilmet is trying to de-escalate whatever is causing the agitation with Mr. Rodriguez. But Mr. Rodriguez is very animated. Chief Gilmet is very calm. Uh, but but Mr. Rodriguez is animated so much so that the security at the T-bar uh, kind of come in between them and ask Mr. Rodriguez to leave. Uh, you can you can tell by the video, there's no sound on it, but you can just tell by his mannerisms that he's he's upset that he's being asked to leave. And uh, about half of the, the folks that he showed up with leave with him and they kind of stand around outside the bar for a little bit, the T-bar. Well, one of his colleagues goes back in and gets the rest of the people that came with him. There was probably between seven and nine folks that uh, were with his party that all showed up. And after they left the, the restaurant, they kind of stood around outside. And the way that it was described from the security folks there at, at uh, the restaurant was like they were waiting for Danny and his colleagues to come out to sort of confront them uh, or fight with them. And the way it was described, it was kind of like somebody waiting for somebody outside of high school to fight them after class or something. And it was, you know, it was time for the evening to end for uh, the Raiders. And they started to depart the T-bar and the security guys held them up so that there wasn't going to be any, uh, any confrontation out in front of the bar until Mr. Rodriguez and his colleagues, you know, took off down the street. And, and they did. So probably five or six minutes after that, Gunny Dreher and, and uh, Chief Gilmet and Gunny Negron departed the T-bar the and, and headed toward their truck. And this is where it really becomes important. And Gunnery Sergeant Dreher, Danny Dreher, uh, spoke about this, made a statement about this during the Article 32 hearing. Is After they left the T-bar and had walked down the street a little bit, he saw uh, Mr. Rodriguez and the, the six or eight people that he was with, because, again, there were 79 of them all together. And they're stationed on a very small base, and, and Gunny Dreyer has 
some leadership responsibilities on that base. And so he thought he would go over and kind of, you know, quash the situation, whatever the agitation was that uh, Mr. Rodriguez had with Chief Gilmet and kind of get things back on track. And so, as he described, he approached uh, Mr. Rodriguez and the six or eight people that he was with. And uh, this is all on video as well, or security video that, that shows all of this. And we go through it frame by frame in the Article 32 hearing, and we've gone through it frame by frame in, in great detail that Gunnery Sergeant Dreyer approaches Mr. Rodriguez and the six or eight people that he's with, and Chief Gilmet's uh, a little ways behind him, and Gunny Negron's a little ways behind that. And as he's approaching him, his hands are down by his side, his palms are out, and Mr. Rodriguez says words to the effect of Gunny Dreyer, hey, you coming to finish what was started inside? To which Gunnery Sergeant Dreyer responded, why does it have to be like that? Again, his hands are down by his side, his, his arms are open. Mr. Rodriguez approached him in a, you know, a, an agitated state. And you can tell on the video that he's, uh, he's yelling at him. And he takes his left hand and lifts it up and, and pokes, Mr., or pokes Gunnery Sergeant Dreyer in the, in the chest, on the right-hand side of his chest. And again, you can, you can tell that he's you know, speaking in a very animated manner to Gunnery Sergeant Dreyer. Gunny Dreyer's hands never, you know, come above his waist. His hands are down by his side. Probably four or five seconds after that, Mr. Rodriguez kind of comes at Gunny Dreyer again uh, with his head. Looks like he's going to headbutt him or he's getting ready to hit him. And Gunnery Sergeant Dreyer pushes him back with both hands. You know, again, not a punch in any way. Just both open hands uh, against Mr. Rodriguez's chest and pushes him back about two steps or three steps. And his hands come straight back down to his side. And, and as he told the, the hearing officer, he was just trying to get some space between him and Mr. Rodriguez because he thought Mr. Rodriguez was going to hit him. Mr. Rodriguez immediately closes that distant, uh, distance back to Gunny Dreyer. And with his right hand, and I mean from way back, with his right hand, takes a wild swing at Gunny Dreyer and Gunny Dreyer's hands are still down by his side when he gets hit, but he, you know, he hits Gunny Dreyer in the left-hand side of his face with his right hand. And that pushes Gunny Dreyer back about three steps. And uh, Mr. Rodriguez is continuing to come at him in a violent way. And his hand is all the way back again, his right hand. And another huge roundhouse punch is coming in at Gunny Dreyer's face. I mean, the swing is already in action. He's almost uh, connecting with Gunny Dreyer's face. And you can see on the video that Gunnery Sergeant Negron from the side comes to Gunnery Sergeant Dreyer's defense and hits Mr. Rodriguez one time. Again, Mr. Rodriguez was sort of surrounded by six or eight other guys, and it's, you know, the three Raiders there with him. Chief Gelmet's off to the side, but Gunny Negron comes in to Gunnery Sergeant Dreyer's defense is Gunnery Sergeant Dreyer is, quite frankly, on his way to the ground. It's, it's one hit, and from that hit, Mr. Rodriguez goes down to the ground, but the momentum from that big swing that he was taking kind of takes his body around, and, and he clearly hits his head on the street, and everybody there thinks he's knocked out. So everybody kind of checks on him a little bit, especially Chief Gilmet and, and one of the fellows that was with uh, Mr. Rodriguez, and they kind of check him out, roll him onto his left side. And at that time, all of the people that are with Mr. Rodriguez, they kind of start to disperse away. 
I mean, it very clearly appears that they're going to leave him there. And Gunny Dreyer uh, goes and gets their truck because they're not going to leave a, a fellow American laying on the streets of Erbil, Iraq, uh, after midnight on New Year's Day. And, and Gunny Dreyer backs his truck up and they put Mr. Rod one, one of Mr. Rodriguez's colleagues and the other three guys put Mr. Rodriguez into the, uh, the back seat of the truck they were in and they drive him back to base. And they go through a couple different security checkpoints to get back into their base and they take him back to his quarters. He's living in, you know, one of these, uh, one of these cans, one of these container units, you know, they take him back to his, uh, billeting area and they put him to bed and, and chief Gilmet, I think at the time he was the number two medical person on the, on the base, you know, checks him out, makes sure that he's breathing. Okay. That, you know, he's responsive to uh, moving, you know, he's, uh, you know, shifting in his own bed. My recollection is that, uh, Gilmet has somebody go get his bag just to make sure and check his blood pressure. And, and when Mr. Rodriguez hit the, hit the ground, there was a, you know, a, I guess minor is probably the, the, the best way to say it, a very minor laceration on the back of his head. Wasn't bleeding profusely or anything, but uh, he had a, a, you know, an insignificant uh, laceration on the back of his head. And Chief Gilmet uh, patched that up with some new skin. Didn't need stitches or anything, just some, some of that medical super glue. Still, still breathing, still alive. Everyone figured he had just, you know, was, was super intoxicated and, and had passed out. And was you know previously knocked out, and, and Chief uh, Chief Gilmet stays with him for hours. One of uh, Mr. Rodriguez's coworkers comes over and kind of takes over watching him. And and really, what they're doing is they're just making sure that he doesn't aspirate on on vomit if he throws up because he had been drinking. And uh, you know, Chief Gilmet went to I think get something to eat and get cleaned up, and and he received a call from the fellows that were just watching over him while he was sleeping. And again, he had. He had rolled on his side. He had, you know, was moving okay. Chief Gilmet had received a call that he was in duress, and they immediately, you know, went to him, started uh, performing medical care on him, and then all of that got escalated up until they transferred him to the medical facility on base. And then, not too long after that, Mr. Rodriguez was uh, transported to Launchstool for, uh, you know, higher echelon of care. And I think one of the important things is, is, you know, when when this immediately got reported to the talk that Mr. Rodriguez was uh, in some medical duress, I mean, what what they told him to do was, hey, go get Chief Gilmet, let you know, so so he can get some medical care. Well, I mean, you know, that's the one who checked him out. That's the one who was providing the care. I mean, you know, again, Chief Gilmet was one of the senior guys on the base. And the the real unfortunate part about this is as a result, uh, apparently, of of his head hitting the street. Uh, much earlier in the morning, uh, he had what, what appears to be sustained uh, an injury to his brain, and and ultimately, and unfortunately, and tragically, he ended up passing away several days later. As as Fred had described, uh, an investigation was conducted. You know that that led to the investigation being turned over to the Marine Special Operations Command, who, after consulting with, uh, I guess, some legal advisors, made the decision to. Uh, bring charges against these three. And, you know, as it was described in this, uh, this Article 32 hearing, there's an, an absolute right to defend yourself. There's an absolute right to defend someone else who needs help, as uh, Benny Negron did for, for Gunnery Sergeant Dreyer. 
it's the unfortunate circumstance that, that Mr. Rodriguez passed away. But as we argued and presented during that Article 32 hearing, he was the aggressor that evening from, from early on and, and throughout the evening until, and, and, and I, I don't think that I am coloring this in any way that would not be objectively seen on, on the video until he savagely attacked Gunnery Sergeant Dreyer and Gunnery Sergeant Negron uh, hit him one time in defense of, of Gunnery Sergeant Dreyer. And that's, you know, that's what was presented and and that's what was uh, shown at the Article 32 hearing. What the charge, if I'm not mistaken, is uh, obstruction of justice. Why? Well, you know, what, what they're trying to say is, is that they, they didn't have as much authority as they believed they had to be able to be out that night or out as late that night as, as they otherwise might have thought they would. And so what they, what they have alleged is that instead of taking him to a medical facility, they took him back to his billeting. And, and the reason why they did that was because they didn't want anybody to know that they had been out late that night. That's the, the basis upon which they've charged the obstruction. So they obstructed the investigation by taking him back to his barracks room or his, his CHU, the container housing unit he was living in, uh, instead of a medical facility. And all I can tell you is, is, is it wasn't just the three Raiders that were out that night. There was, I mean, if you had the opportunity to, to see the video of the T-bar, there were dozens of people, dozens of, of U.S. Uh, individuals, Westerners, that were in the T-bar that night, and, and several Marines, and including the three Raiders. So that's the, you know, that's the reason that they've tried to charge this uh, obstruction. That is to say that they're trying to make something more out of it than what it really was. So the case goes to a court-martial. Do you think that the charges will stand or they fall apart? Well, it's, you know, it, it's hard to say. I, you know, I won't go in, in any great detail into what our defense will be in the case, but I don't, I don't think it's any great secret. The investigating officer, the, the pretrial hearing officer, you know, reported on the very significant self-defense issues that are going to be present in this case. And self-defense is exactly what happened. And, th and that is what we articulated to the hearing officer. The problem is self-defense is an affirmative defense. And that's what the hearing officer addressed to General Yu. He you know, clearly set out in that report that he wrote how difficult a case it's going to be, given that there is a significant self-defense issue present. So, you know, will, will the case get to a jury? It, it may. It, you know, in my opinion, it, it should have never got to the charging process because the self-defense issues are clearly present in the objective videos if you watch them. Do you think that Staff Sergeant Melgar's murder back in 2017 in Mali is negatively influencing this case? I can speak on that a little bit only because I represent one of the SEALs that is involved in that case. Mr. Voki, who, uh, who represents Chief Gilmet, also represents one of the other Marines that's uh, one of the Marines that's involved in that case as well. And I can tell you that certainly the press that has swirled around the special operations community in general has led the special operations leadership to make very public statements about their disappointments in the 
and the goings-on inside of the special operations community. Now, a lot of their disappointment is clearly based upon not giving their operators the benefit of the doubt in you know, combat situations in a combat zone. So, I, you know, I don't, I don't know that I would tie anything specifically to the, the case that involved the, uh, again, unfortunate and tragic death of Logan Melgar. But I think that there are some very high-profile cases that are swirling around the special operations community right now, and that the leadership has been publicly embarrassed by the allegations that have swirled around uh, without consideration as to whether the allegations were true or not, or what the context or circumstances of the allegations are. Um, and I, you know, I'll, I'll give you just one example. If you if you were to go back and and read the Daily Beast sort of write-up on the allegations involving the, again, very unfortunate and tragic death of Logan Melgar. It had to do with, you know, discovery of larceny of, of uh, special operations funds and, and all those kind of things. And, you know, as the investigation was completed and as the Article 32s were completed in those lines of cases, none of that's true. So it came across as this very, you know, this very sinister plan for, you know, stealing money and, and uh, you know, quieting people up about that. And it had nothing to do with that. I mean, it, it, it literally had to do with, you know, guys playing jokes on other guys and, and things went very tragic that night. So is, is the special operations community right now? in the public eye in a way they wouldn't like to be, I would say, sure. And is that impacting decisions that are being made in these types of cases? It has to. And I think that goes back to what Fred said at the beginning about officers wanting to please their superiors. Bull, uh, let's go to you. Can you please tell us about your organization and how it helps in such cases? Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having us uh, and, and having me on alongside both Bill Phil Stackhouse and Fred Galvin. I mean, these two individuals, they're outstanding. I, as the uh, CEO of United American Patriots, we've got a, a pretty diverse mission. You know, primarily, we're responsible for informing the president, Congress, and citizens, funding legal representation, and supporting reintegration for U.S. warriors who are wrongfully accused and unjustly convicted of war crimes. And primarily, we're doing this to preserve the presumption of innocence and protect against unlawful command influence, prosecutorial misconduct, and investigator abuse. So we see all of these different cases. And uh, what's interesting is, you know, we've been able to work with uh, Phil Stackhouse, you know, as the CEO of UAP, you know, I've been able to see and also support Phil's commitment to ensuring that service members' rights are not being violated by, uh, you know, this complex and sometimes convoluted and sometimes skewed process known as this Uniform Code of Military Justice. I'm really thankful to see that we've got someone like Bill out here fighting for people, and he's willing to step up and make sure that these overzealous prosecutors and uh, these commanders who sometimes act in uh, what we call UCI, uh, unlawful command influence, that they're, they're being kept in check. And it's really important that we have these uh, civilian attorneys who have extensive military background who understand the military system, but at the same time are not controlled and constrained by it and have the freedom to do the right thing at the right time. 
I think that that's, that's really critical. So er- everything that Phil's doing out here is absolutely imperative for the justice for the warrior. That's key. And where, where we've seen this go astray, and, and we'll talk about you know, our Marsoc warriors right now, but we, we see it time and again. And, and I'll just step back and talk a little bit about when I was working on Capitol Hill and my job was representing the stand-up of MARSOC, the Marine Special Operations Command, I saw the challenges, both the, you know, the political challenges and the sibling rivalries played out as MARSOC was being established. And it was quite obvious when Fred's company, you know, these, these guys are some of the most highly trained and professional warriors that MARSOC or the Marine Corps had ever deployed into combat. It was the first combat deployment for these raiders that they were going to face some serious potential threats, two specifically in Afghanistan. The first were going to be the bombs and the bullets that were going to be directed towards them, trying to test this new unit, see if they had the the merit, the ability, the the uh, courage to stay in and engage. And so they, they came at them with everything they had, and all of a sudden the Afghans were like, oh, my God, these warriors are not stepping back. And, and Fred led these guys in a serious firefight to where – the Afghans realized this was something different. This was a unit that had something to prove, and they were going to do the right thing at the right time, and we're going to destroy the enemy. They were so scared that they immediately started elevating this alarm and saying, get these freaking crazy devil dogs out of here. And so this is where it played into the second threat. And the second threat was that we were going to see a bunch of senior leaders from other services with these prejudicial or... Uh, overcritical scrutiny of the Marines, who on the one hand were sitting here saying, "Hey, they're they're kind of stepping into our special operations lane," which, you know, on a tactical level, you know, there's sibling rivalry here, which is healthy, but on a a strategic and a political level, now all of a sudden they were going to be competing for funds. So certainly there was a, a sense of you know who's this new kid on the block, and maybe perhaps even secretly assuming they would fail or hoping they would fail. And so the first indicator, oh, look, something went wrong. These guys, they're not trained up to do, you know, these high-speed missions we do. They don't know how to handle it. Boom, all of a sudden, it played right into it, and they kicked them out of the country. Now, just to put this in perspective, I don't know of a unit in the history of conflict for the United States that's ever been kicked out of a country. I mean, it's absolutely insane. It played right into the enemy. And the Afghans must have been dancing and laughing and uh, saying, Alhamdulillah, you know, thank God we were able to trick the Americans into getting these warriors out. I think it's important to kind of put that into context and perspective uh, with that case, because now we roll over into, you know, the, the cases that we're seeing right now, as we're seeing with uh, Gunnery Sergeant Danny Drar, Gunnery Sergeant Josh Negron, and Chief Eric Gilmet. I mean, these are three of the most highly trained warriors, again, MARSOC warriors, and yet there's still a stigma within the Marine Corps even that, you know, these special operators are somehow cowboys and they kind of live outside the the rules that are formally accepted by, you know, the well-disciplined warriors the that will, you know, the instant and willing respect for authority. It just, it's just not true. But there's that, that stigma and as such, when all of a sudden an incident happens, there's a knee-jerk reaction by the senior leaders like, whoa, we got to get these crazy cowboys in line. You know, these guys are loose cannons. I'm going to show everybody I'm tough. I, I, don't, I don't put up with these guys 
you know, breaking the rules. And, and so this is what exactly happened here with our Warriors. And, uh, you know, as Fred talked about and as uh, Phil talked about, you know, they came out and, and you have these overzealous prosecutors overcharging. I mean, this is a bar fight. Let's keep this into perspective. It's a freaking bar fight. If you're a warrior and you haven't been in a bar fight, well, you're probably not out there on the front lines because you know what? There's always going to be somebody who thinks they're bigger, badder, tougher than you, and they're going to test you. They're going to try and stick a beer bottle in your face. They're going to try and prove their manhood. And so it's to, to all of a sudden say, all right, here's a bar fight in which the aggressor was the one that unfortunately lost, unfortunately lost his life. And I say unfortunate because I'm certain that this guy when in a normal situation where if he was put in chat in a in harm's way as a former special forcer forces warrior as a contractor probably did his job and did it well and here unfortunately he was intoxicated he wasn't thinking properly and one thing happened you know one thing led to another one punch hit him caught him and knocked him out that happens okay welcome to the the life of a warrior that happens but then to have some prosecutors who probably have never been in a bar fight, who, you know, the whole concept of thinking and uh, of getting into some uh, fisty cuffs is probably beyond the scope of what they can even imagine. Now, all of a sudden, they want to come along and they want to, well, they, not only do they want to make sure they keep these tough guys in line, you know, they, they come out with these overcharging of manslaughter, which even all of the video recordings show this was certainly not manslaughter. It was so it was absolutely self-defense. Uh, so it was nowhere near manslaughter. But this is where, you know, they want to try and get a big kill. Why? Because these prosecutors, if you put things into perspective, these are individuals who said, you know what, I want to go to I want to go to law school, but I can't afford it. But oh, the government will do that. Well, what do I got? What do I have? I've got to go 16 weeks, learn how to wear a uniform, knife and fork school, and then <laughs> you know, go and serve for a couple of years as a, a, an attorney pretending to be in the military. And next thing you know, if I get a prosecution, I get a big paying job because I get more trial time in the military than I will working for some big law firm. Hey, sign me up. Now, now, and to be clear, we've got some great jags out there who are doing the right thing at the right time. But when you get caught with these guys who are not doing the right thing, that's when all of a sudden they have to be brought back in. And the challenge is that for the most part, our JAGs, they have to act with their own sense of self-discipline to do the right thing, because for the most part, they act with impunity. What do I mean by that? That in the history of the Uniform Code of Military Justice, there has never been one prosecutor that has ever been held criminally accountable for criminal activity. That sounds bizarre. So what it means is that if I want to win a case, and I do because it's going to affect my career and it's going to affect my future career when I get out as an attorney, well, I'm going to do everything I can. I mean everything to make sure I win this case. And guess what? If I cross the line, oh, well, what's the worst that's going to happen? Eh, maybe administratively, they'll pull me off the case, but nothing really is going to impact me in a negative way. I'm certainly not going to go to prison. And people say, well, are they doing anything that bad? Yes. They're violating the Constitution of the United States, and that's about as bad as it gets. When you infringe upon individuals' rights, yes, that's a criminal offense, and you should go to prison for it. Yet, they don't. And so this is where our organization, United American Patriots, 
as I said, we're trying to preserve the individual's rights. And when we see them getting trampled, we step in. And, and we see this across the board. We see prosecutors, this what we call prosecutorial misconduct, where prosecutors withhold evidence, what's called exculpatory evidence or exonerating evidence, meaning information that would prove or at least lead to proving to the fact that this warrior did not commit a crime. Well, we see prosecutors hiding this information. Now, now that's not just like, oh, well, that seems like a little unethical. That's criminal. It's illegal. It's against the Constitution. They must share information they have with the defense so that the truth comes out. That's the whole concept of a trial, is that the truth comes out. Not that the prosecution is able to destroy an individual, but we're seeing where the investigators have missed that. The investigators aren't necessarily looking for the truth anymore, nor are the prosecutors trying to say, hey, let's do the right thing. They're trying to get a win. They're trying to destroy these warriors, and they're over. They're going beyond the bounds of what is proper and what is legal. We see them violating privacy. This is where, if you look at recently in a Navy case against Chief Gallagher, where, again, people have different views about that case, but at the end of the day, the one thing that's not in question is that the prosecutors use spyware, spyware. They spied on the defense attorney invading the attorney-client privilege. That's a criminal offense. You're allowed to tell your attorney whatever it is you want, and your attorney can discuss with you your strategy and all the rest. That's privileged information. And so if that's violated, well, then the individual that violates that, the prosecutor that violates that, by God, they should be held accountable. What happened? Nothing. They were pulled off the case, but there was no action. As a matter of fact, they received medals. I mean, and this is where the president steps in and says, hey, you're not getting medals. Well, no. And everybody went crazy. Like, why is the president stepping in? Well, first of all, because he can. He's the ultimate convening authority. He's the commander in chief. He can move in whichever realm of the military he wants. That's why he's elected. He's an elected civilian individual to protect the Constitution throughout the military. But quite frankly, he didn't go far enough. He should have held people accountable for these actions. We see prosecutors deliberately silencing forensic experts. Well, forensic experts are saying, hey, guess what? And, and here, understand, in, in combat, very, you know, there's a lot of times you just don't even have the body. But in First Lieutenant Behenna's case, for example, you actually had the body. First Lieutenant Behenna, just so you know, was one of the warriors that was pardoned by President Trump early on. And everybody went crazy. Oh, he's a murderer. Well, the forensic expert actually got a chance to evaluate the body and said, no, the Behenna said that he acted in self-defense and the wounds on the body are consistent with his story. Now, this was the prosecutor's expert. What did they do? Well, they fired him. They fired that expert and they hid the information. That's criminal. And when that information and that expert came forward and said, hey, none of this information came to trial, the appeals court said, well, it doesn't matter because you know what? He acted inappropriately and he, he no longer had a right to self-defense. That's freaking insane. Our warriors never give up their right to self-defense, period. Even if they are acting inappropriately, you do not lose your right to self-defense. But that still happened, and Behenna was still found guilty, and it wasn't until the president came along to pardon him that that got fixed. We see enemy combatants who are identified as civilians, where all of a sudden there's a, a, a warrior that's held accountable for killing civilians. 
And yet our organization, UAP.org, funds investigators going to Afghanistan looking into the government, the U.S. government's databases to track down the biometrics, talking about fingerprints, talking about skin cells that are retrieved from IEDs, talking about DNA. And all of a sudden, what happens? Whoa, wait a second. Those civilians, they're enemy combatants. And yet when that information is brought to appeal, the government says, oh, we're, we're not going to dive into the, quote, abyss of biometric. What do you mean? What? Watch crime scene CSI. This is how cases are freaking solved. And that's the irony, is that if these warriors, these honorable individuals who stand up and raise their hand to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, if those individuals who are now being accused of murder or whatever crime, if they happen to have been criminals with long-standing rap sheets who were sitting on death row and the Innocence Project or ACLU came along and said, oh, whoa, 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 there, this individual's rights were violated. There was a, an infringement here. We found some DNA evidence that exonerates them. Guess what? You'd have people screaming from the left side of the aisle saying, get that person off death row. And yet, for some reason, we don't have those same individuals screaming it nearly as loud or even paying attention or supporting the fact that our military should have those same rights. It's a bizarre phenomenon that, that the, our most trusted and respected entity, our United States military, our warriors, aren't receiving the same defense of their rights that, it, in, that a criminal with an extensive criminal record would have. Why do you think is that? That's a great question. I think we need to go into uh, psychological evaluations of people who hate the military and you'd probably find many different reasons for it. But at the end of the day, there is a, a stigma against it, people who serve in the military. There's a perception that, uh, you know, they, they couldn't have done anything else in their life. That's all they had to do. So uh, or they were tricked into serving the mil in the military because, you know, you get all these benefits. And, you know, for example, I, I get these conversations all, all the time. And then when people find out that I actually attended Harvard Business School, they're like, Oh, wait, I, I thought you were in the military. Yes, and I served 25 years as an officer of the United States Marines. Like, people have trouble making sense of that when I'm back in New York. They can't fathom it. So the perception, many times, is that these military guys, you know, they're, they're dumb guys anyway. And you know what? They've probably committed other crimes anyway. So now they just got caught. And it, and, and it just, there is one of the, it's just a sad situation where we have in our country this divided perspective of our war fighters. And I, I wish I knew the answer as to why it was, but I've tried to get people left-leaning to understand, and they will not get behind this concept that our warriors deserve to have their rights preserved as well. That's very unfortunate. And to be honest, at this craze, because if you think it's, a, it's an irony, I mean, people who defend the Constitution are treated, are per perceived like that. You and I agree 100%, Stavos, and, and I'll tell you, there's a lot of people that don't think like that, thank God. And as such, you know, we get donations from people across the country who, they come out and they say, look, we must give our warriors the benefit of the doubt, especially when you look at these guys, when you look at Danny, Josh, and Eric, these, these individuals, first of all, they're highly educated, highly trained, uh, incredible Family people who, you know, they everything about them, they're well-balanced individuals. These are not guys who are looking to, to get into trouble. And, and as all the videotapes show, they were looking for ways to stay out of trouble. 
They tried to avoid confrontations. They said, hey, not going to get into a fight in a bar. Then went outside and said, look, we don't want to fight. This is New Year's. Let's stop this ridiculousness. And then even after that, instead of walking away from the individual who's laying on the ground, said, hold on a second. We're going to do the right thing at the right time. Even Look, this guy may have acted inappropriately. He may be a jerk at this time. But you know what? He's our jerk. And we're not going to leave him alone. That's an honorable individual. You try and find a gangbanger in Detroit, Baltimore, or some other city across the United States who would say, oh, you know what? I just knocked someone out. I just We were playing a knockout game. I just knocked someone out. Oh, but you know what? We should probably pick him up and make sure he's okay. Not happening. That's not who we're talking about. We're talking about honorable individuals who do the right thing at the right time for the right reasons and unfortunately get caught up by overzealous prosecutors and commanders who do not have the strength to step up and do the right thing as well. As a matter of fact, one of the leadership principles of the United States Marine Corps is to ensure that we look out for our warriors' well-being. It's look out for your Marines' welfare. And this is where, when something like this happens, you have to give the benefit of the doubt because all of these people have been screened from enlisting to going through all of their professional service schools on throughout into these special operations organizations. Our special operators are some of the best of the best. They deserve to have their the presumption of innocence, and it didn't happen with these guys. How can our, can our readers support UAP? Thank you, Stavos. I, I appreciate you asking. There's a few different ways. The primary way is uh, going to our website at uap.org, learning more about the organization. Certainly, uh, we're more than happy to take donations. We encourage donations. Every little bit helps. Uh, we have some donors that donate $10,000 a year. We have others that donate $20 every month. Whatever anybody can do is obviously appreciated because we have a, a tough job of informing our elected officials, paying the exorbitant prices for all these legal expenses that come in uh, for all these warriors, and then also helping with reintegration if somebody's gone from the battlefield in incarcerated and then back out. But we also have a couple of events coming up. We've got a shooting event. As a matter of fact, where we're going to have two of our raiders out there teaching individuals how to fire fully automatic weapons. So if people go to UAP.org, they can see this shoot full automatic weapons with our warriors, attend those events. We've got a NASCAR we're putting on the track. Uh, it's all a UAP NASCAR. If people want to get some sort of sponsorship on there for $500 right now, people can put a sticker on there. We have all that information on our website. And again, any little bit helps, but uh, following us on Facebook and seeing the information that we're putting out all the time, the more people are aware, the better off. And, and if I can, Stavos, just to put this into a little bit of perspective, that it took this organization three years to get me on board because you know I, I'm a United States Marine prior enlisted. I've served in combat a few times, and when... One of the board members who I've known since I was a second lieutenant invited me to be involved, and he started telling me about the organization. I said, there was absolutely no way that I would get on board an organization that's supporting murderers who committed war crimes. I mean, these guys were, in my mind, they were a disgrace to all of us who served honorably in combat. And it took them three years, and this one individual, Lieutenant Colonel Bob Wyman, great warrior, to uh, finally sit down and talk through the details of a case with me for me to actually get it. And once I got it, it was almost like the matrix. Once you see the truth, you can't turn away. 
that these individuals, they're not warriors. They've been railroaded. They've had their rights violated. And that's the importance of this organization. And so I've been on board almost two years now. And I'll tell you, each case, I find out more and more and I keep seeing things and you start seeing patterns. And this is where those patterns have to be addressed. So not only are we addressing them at the tactical level and at the operational level with the funding, but we've taken it to the strategic level in that we've helped to establish a Rights for Warriors Caucus, which is now headed up by Congressman uh, Louis Gomer. And he and about seven other congressmen right now continue to fight for our warriors' rights. So this is another way that uh, those people who are listening right now, contact your congressman and ask them why they're not on this board. Why are why they not on this caucus? Why aren't they helping to support the rights of our warriors and get them involved? I, I think that's a broad scope on, on ways that uh, people can actually get involved. You heard the man. You should go call your congressman and try change, to change this. And visit UAP.org. Gentlemen, thank you very much for coming on board. It was an honor, on time, on target. Outstanding. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.